0: I want to speak uh, for a few moments on a passage of Scripture that that nearly didn't make it into the Bible. Seriously, if you're a student of how we got the Bible, and it's a wonderful story to, to be acquainted with, because God not only inspired this Word, He protected it. He's the one that brought it together. He's the one that edited it. So the Word of God came into being as a result of a series of interventions by God through His people, through the church. And so there are some verses of Scripture that uh, are, are, are called spurious, and in, in some Bibles they're added into the Bible, the Apocrypha, both an Old Testament, New Testament Apocrypha, uh, writings that they don't feel were inspired, like the words that are in the uh, the books of the Bible that we have. But this story nearly didn't make it, and it didn't make it because some of the early church leaders began to be a little suspicious of it, thinking that somehow it might be be suggesting that Jesus was was lax and weak on the subject of of, uh, sin and morality. St. Augustine said that this story provides an excuse for sinning that would be given to women. Let me read you the story that barely made it into the Bible. But it belongs here because God put it here and because Jesus told this. The Word of God tells us what Jesus did with this person. It's the 8th chapter of John, the Gospel of John, the 8th chapter. Now listen to it. You know the story. You've heard it, but listen to the words of it. Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. At dawn he appeared again in the temple court where all the people gathered around him and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, If any one of you is without sin, let him begin stoning her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time. The older ones first until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you. Jesus declared, Go now and leave your life of sin. This story had trouble getting into the Bible and the message of this story has had a hard time getting into life, into the world, even into the minds and hearts and attitudes of believing Christians. Grace has trouble getting into life. Forgiveness has trouble getting into life. The world that you and I live in, is, and particularly in America right now, we are we are obsessed with trials. Listen to how much of our news has to do with a trial somewhere. It's big news every day, every night, and that's because the world outside of Christ is more concerned with judgment than with mercy. More locked into condemnation than compassion. What we do uh, is, and it seeps into the life of Christians even, and can seep into the life of churches and denominations. We come along and we set up courtrooms. And we drag ourselves and everybody else into that courtroom and we start judging ourselves, and we start judging one another, we get into that courtroom, the tendency is for us to start trying to plead our own case. We're saying, but I'm only human. Um, If you knew what I was going through, you'd know why I did what I did. We... Feel like in this courtroom, this self created courtroom that is fostered uh, by the society in which we live, we get in there and we start trying to plead our own case. Trying to prove that we're really not that bad after all. That we've not really thought those thoughts and done those deeds. And if we did, that somehow, if you just understood me, why, well, uh, you'd let me out of this courtroom. I think that's what uh, my good friend, Dr. Former President of Baylor, now Chancellor of Baylor, Herbert Reynolds, tells a story about. The two cowboys were riding around the countryside out in West Texas many, many years ago. It was Sunday morning. Heard church bells ringing. So uh, Jake said to his friend, "said "Uh, Why we haven't been to church in a long time? Why don't we go to church?" So they tied up their horses, and they went into the church, and the pastor was preaching a sermon on the Ten Commandments. I mean, not just one of them, the whole bunch, the whole load. And he preached a long time. And when Jake and his friend left church, they went out and they got on their horses and rode for about 20 or 30 minutes, and neither one of them said a word. Finally, Jake said to his friend, Well, at least we ain't made no graven images Uh, I at least got one out of the ten right, <laughs> trying to make our case, plead our case. Uh, you know, I, I have, uh, thinking about this, and I have preached on this passage many years ago and began to study it again and seeing new things here that I'd not seen before, and, and uh, God revealing more to me out of the Word of God as I've learned more about myself and put the two together. Uh, I can look back and, and see where I grew up in a time, and we're still in it, where we seem to have a kind of sin of the decade, like, kind of like the, you know, the, the flavor of the month, the sin of the decade. Now, back when I was in junior high school and high school, the main sin, now there are a whole bunch of them out there, but the number one sin, the number one thing that people said, this is the cause of our problems today, was the word immorality. Now, everybody knew what they meant by the word immorality. They meant sexual behavior. That was the number one problem. Well, it, it is a problem. It is a question. It is a sin, to be sure. But that was sort of the sin of the decade. And then we came back, went through World War II, and came back in a lot of early marriages, and those who had been separated for two or three years started having difficulties and problems. And so, the decade after the war, the primary sin was divorce. That was it. That's a breakdown of the family. That's true. That is a big sin. That's a big problem. That's a big hurt. For folks who go through it, it's a difficult thing for them. Whether it's wanted or unwanted, it's difficult. That was a big sin. Now today, the, I guess there's two of them that are pretty much characteristic of the sin of the, of the decade. And that uh, would be homosexuality and abortion. Now, all of those things, all of those major heavyweight sins are sins, to be sure. No question about that. But there are also some middleweight sins and some lightweight sins and some featherweight sins. And they're all a part of our lives. Through these years, I have had people come into my office and sit down and talk and share and ask for some counseling and some help on just about every subject you can think of. I've had people come in and sit down. More than one, but one in particular came in sat down and he said, Buckner, I need to confess to you that I have committed murder and I'm running from the law. I live in Indiana and God's begun to convict me of of my crime. What should I do? I said, well, the first thing we need to do is you need to ask God to forgive you. And then you, then you need to get in your car, or on a train, or a plane, and go back to Indiana. That you did. I've had people confess every imaginable sin: incest, abuse, drugs, alcohol abuse, child abuse, greed, pride, hate, prejudice. You know, Marvin, there's one, there's one sin that's mentioned frequently in the Bible that no one has ever talked to me about. Maybe some others of you who are pastors or chaplains, maybe some have come to you, but I've never had anyone come into my office and be deeply concerned and even maybe tearful and say to me, Pastor, I am a glutton. I've never heard. It's it's clear; it's in the Bible. I've never heard anybody come in and say, "Pastor, I need to ask God to forgive me for being gluttonous, overeating." Now, I don't. The the point I'm trying to make is here, is that there is a whole galaxy of transgressions and sins and iniquities out there, and one may rise in the in the life of a person or a, a time, a decade. That becomes a paramount one but listen all of us have sinned and I've said it a hundred times and I'll say it a hundred more we have not all sinned alike but all alike have sinned all of us have we set up a moral courtroom we try to plead our own case we try to blame somebody else well the woman made me do it the man made me do it society made me do it my glands made me do it anything to try to get the judge to suspend our sentence But Jesus did not come to set up a courtroom. Jesus came to set up an emergency room and a hospital room. He came to set up an emergency room and a hospital room. And that's what we see right here in this passage of Scripture. Now, I could ask how many of you have been taken into an emergency room at one time or another? Can I see your hand? Most of you. Well, I have more than once. Bad car wreck back in 63 and a couple of other incidents. This past spring... I had a kidney stone. I don't even like to say it, I'm afraid that my body will, will take, uh, take vengeance on me. How many of you have had that glorious experience? Wow, well, after that car wreck, well, let me use the latest experience, going out to Northeast Baptist Hospital. Oh, I've never been in such pain. Well, when they took me into the emergency room, what did they do? Did the doctor come in and say, well, Bugner, you're hurting? I know that, Doctor. That's why I'm here. I'm hurting. Uh, Bugner, you should have been drinking more water. I don't want them to tell me how bad I hurt. I want them to do what they will do. They don't ask me any questions about why this happened to me. They go to work immediately on dealing with the problem. That's exactly what Jesus is doing right here. He is the great physician. He is not the great prosecutor. We don't sing it much in our day, and I've written these words down. I've sung it as I've grown up in the life of the church, and I haven't had it memorized. The first verse I have, but some of you will remember this. And I don't know whether it's in our hymnal or not. The great physician. The great physician now is near the sympathizing Jesus. He speaks the drooping heart to cheer. Oh, hear the voice of Jesus. Your many sins are all forgiven. Oh, hear the voice of Jesus. Go on your way to peace in heaven and wear a crown with Jesus. His name dispels my guilt and fear. No other name but Jesus. Oh, how my soul delights to hear the charming name of Jesus. And the chorus, sweetest name in seraph song, Sweetest name on mortal tongue, sweetest carol ever sung. Jesus, blessed Jesus. He's come to set up a hospital room. And in this story, we see people, we see individuals, and Jesus reveal a powerful truth. What we see here, we do not see people divided into two groups. No, we do not, they're not divided as the guilty and the righteous, the good and the bad. We see them as all guilty. All guilty. Two types of guilt for all of us have sinned. Isn't it interesting when you read this story, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group. And it was a custom to take off her garments from the waist up. And she's standing there, naked from the waist up. Obviously, her hands crossed in front of her. They made her stand before the group. And they said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. and the law, of Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? You know, I, I am not uh, naive about life. I am not ignorant of what goes on in the world. But it's, I have always felt that it took two people to participate in an act of adultery. Where was the man? Now, Moses did give a law in the 20th chapter of Leviticus in the 10th verse that they were to be stoned, a person was to be stoned to death if they committed the act of adultery, but it mentions man and woman. Sexism, my friend, didn't start in our century. It's here, right here in the Word of God. What you have here are two different types of guilty people. Two different types, not the guilty and the righteous, not the good and the bad. All of them equally sinners divided into two groups. Now, C.S. Lewis reminds us that in this story we have some confusion, and we have some confusion because, and this is the reason Augustine had some problem with it, we have some confusion because we equate Condoning with forgiving. They're separate. To condone means to ignore it. Play like it didn't happen. Or say it makes no difference. You're okay. That's condoning it. That is not what it means to be forgiven. Forgiveness means that we have accepted the grace of God and we are giving the grace of God to our fellow sinners. We're not dragging people into the court of judgment. We're leading people to the throne of grace. By faith in Jesus Christ, our sins are forgiven. Now hear me. No person, no person who refuses to to admit his guilt can ever accept forgiveness there is no forgiveness for those who are unwilling to admit their guilt to face the reality of who they are and what they're thinking and what they're doing Jesus does not deny her sin he doesn't minimize it he doesn't excuse it what does he do he blots it out He erases it. He forgives it. In a sense, this woman represents all of us who have failed. And all of us have. All of us who have sinned. All of us have. Jesus addresses her sin, but does not condone her sin. He forgives her sin. You know, I've heard it all my life in church. Ever since I was a little boy, and I've preached it, and I've quoted it, and I've said it, and you've said it, and you've heard it, that we're to hate the sin and love the sinner. We don't do that very well, do we? Now, I can always separate me from my sin. I can say, well, if you only understood, if you only knew, if you know what pressure I was under, but I don't do that for others, not unless I accept myself as a guilty sinner in the eyes of God and ask Him to forgive me and pour upon me His grace greater than all of my sin and then pass that love and that grace through me to the world around me, practicing what I have experienced. You know what He did here? Jesus is so fantastic. He is so great. He He wipes out the sin of one to arouse the guilt in the lives of others. That's an amazing thing that's happening here. He blots out the sin of this woman. He forgives her. But by the statement that he makes, he arouses in the mind of all of these religious leaders that had dragged this woman into the presence of Jesus. He aroused guilt within them. Why? To make them suffer To make them suffer? To give them moral pain? No. He arouses guilt within us so that we will bring that to Him so that He can forgive us. God is not concerned with condemning us or condoning us. God's concerned about forgiving us. All of us. And here He arouses the guilt in the minds of these men when He asks this question, if any one of you is without sin let him begin stoning her. Now picture it in your mind. It got real still. More than their, the stillness in this room. got real still. And they started walking away. by one they walked away now I personally believe that that very act of turning and walking away was an act of repentance that's what repentance means it means to turn in another direction having been confronted with the reality of their own sin however religious they might have been however serious they might have been about the Word of God and living for God. Here they hated this woman. They were trying to trick Jesus. Their motives were wrong. And he brought up from the Word of God, the living Word of God, out of his lips to say, any one of you without sin, you start throwing the first stone. Go ahead and stone her. And every one of them started walking away. And if we get real still, and listen very closely. We'll hear those stones hitting the ground, one by one, like the timpani and the symphony of salvation. change your direction, change your attitude, change your spirit toward other people. Remember this. If you forget everything else about this story and this sermon, remember this. We are not lost because of what we do. I hope you'll hear that. I need to hear it. The world needs to. We're not lost because of what we do. We're lost because of what we don't do. We don't accept Christ as our forgiving Savior. He'll forgive any sin, any transgression, overt, objective, subjective, in outward life, or in inner thinking. He forgives all of our sin. And He does not separate us from Him because of what we do, for nothing can separate us from the love of God. He will not allow us to be separated from Him if we will but accept His loving grace. All of our sins are forgiven. And I believe these men did exactly that. I believe we see in their body language turning away from accusations against this woman and dropping the stone that was in their hand, they're saying, I'm moving in a new direction. Realizing that this woman, like all of us in this room, and all of us on this planet Earth, are not condemned because of what we do. We're only condemned if we refuse His grace. Unrequited love. Our response, unrequited love, leaves us without hope, without peace, and without forgiveness. Augustine said, God gives where he finds empty hands. God gives where he finds empty hands. you come bringing good works in your hand? If you come bringing greed in your hand or selfishness in your hand or pride in your hand? If you come as an accuser as these men did? You're filled with accusations against others? We can't receive grace unless we open our hands and open our hearts. I remember a preacher, I don't remember who it was. I remember when I heard it. It was about 1947, 48. And I heard a preacher say, and I've never forgotten it. He said, when you point your finger at someone else in accusation, remember you're pointing three of your fingers at yourself. When you point at someone else, three fingers. And you can't do that unless you close your fist. And God gives only to open hands. And so this morning I pray you will open your heart, that you will open your heart to him, and that you will walk out of here in a few moments the way those men walked away from Jesus and the way that woman walked away. I believe those men overheard Jesus. I don't believe they were out of earshot when he said to her, Go and stop your life of sin. The sin of adultery. The sin of pride. The sin of accusation. The sin of sexual transgression. All our sins are gone if we'll open our hands and receive it. And I pray that here in this service today, a lot of sins will be washed away by the grace of God, and that we'll walk out of here with our hands open to receive his love and grace, and to invite people to come to him, not pointing them out as sinners, but pointing sinners to Jesus Christ. So I invite you to come. I'll be here to greet you and welcome you and to pray with you and pray for you. You may want, as some did last Sunday and the Sunday before, to come and just kneel and go back to your seat. you want to say something to me, fine. But whatever God has said to you and urged you to do today, to put your faith and trust in Him, to join this church, if this is where God is leading you, where God is wanting you to serve and be served, to be a part of this fellowship, I'll be right here to greet you. God gives only to open hands. So open your heart, receive his grace greater than all of our sin, and as Marvin sang so beautifully a moment ago, come be together with the people of God as we worship him and serve him and bring people to him. Would you come? I'll be here to greet you. Let's stand and sing.